Hi everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and you're listening to K-Pop. This week, Matt Schlapp. He's the chairman of the American Conservative Union. You know them as the folks who put on the CPAC conference every year. We talk about a lot of things, including the alt-right's takeover of the Republican Party. Well, we don't exactly agree on what alt-right means, but I start off the conversation by asking the question you've been dying to ask conservatives about their support of President Trump. Matt Schlapp, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Great to be with you, Jonathan. I've got to ask this question because I just have to. Ask away. You have to help me out with something. Why have conservatives rallied around a thrice-married adulterer? You know, I just wrote a piece about why conservatives have rallied around them, and I think that's an accurate description. I really do think they've rallied around them. The first reason is is that you look at it with the most recent experiences is that they look at the last 30 days and they're they're happy with what they see. They love the selection of Neil Gorsuch. They love the idea that he actually picked a name off that list that he vetted with uh, the Federal Society and with the Heritage Foundation with kind of luminaries and jurisprudence. Uh, they love the cabinet or most of it. Um, they're really pleased that it looks like he is uh, doing everything he can from an executive power standpoint to roll back the Obama agenda. Uh, so they love that. Now, okay, so why before the 30 days did they get behind him? And I would say this, my I've thought about this long and hard. I remember at CPAC last year, uh, I was uh, a target of this Never Trump movement, and it was a desire to get him uninvited from CPAC. So I had to deal with this with a lot of really good friends and people who felt strongly on the other side. And uh, what I came to realize is, is that I wouldn't say so much D.C., conservatives and Republicans, but uh, folks around the country, they were so distraught over the fact that they felt that the Republican Party, even with congressional majorities, were passive uh, when Obama was doing things they felt like were very questionable constitutionally and unconstitutional. They felt like they should have been more aggressive. And they felt, they feel even to this day that Republicans are so worried about the backlash of standing up for our values that uh, they're not as aggressive as they should be. And uh, and they look at the Democrats and they say, look, Obama gets elected and he just he got all of his agenda in one way or the other. I mean, he, I, I, I give him credit for it. By hook or by crook, he got it in. He just kept going, 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 going. Even when Republicans thought they would be able to stop him, he kept going. Republicans tend to not do that. We tend to be more careful. And Donald Trump is not going to be careful. He is going to uh, push through his agenda. And so they like the fact that he fights. Do they have questions about the things you mentioned and, and other things? Absolutely. And all that's there, all wrapped up in a bow. All the good and all the bad. But what they see is the good, which seems to override all these other concerns, is the man fights. But sometimes some of these fights, though, are really unnecessary. Are they not unnerved? that he will get into a fight with Meryl Streep, that he'll get into a fight with the judiciary, that he'll get into a fight, I would say the press, but I understand you know, the press is not, the press is not very popular. Neither is Hollywood, by the way. Well, no, neither is Hollywood, but he's president of the United States. Why is he punching down as opposed to spending that time Pushing his pushing his agenda. Look, I'm not going to filling his cabinet. I'm not going to advocate that he punched down. All I'm going to say to you is the what's the, what's the theme in all those things you brought up. He's he's, he's fighting. He's fighting. He's fighting back, and I mean, they I feel think the American people wouldn't begrudge a president who fights, but fights the right battles. 
fighting Meryl Streep. Okay, but you're you're asking two different questions. Uh-huh. You said why have conservatives rally around him? True. I'm giving him your answer now. You right. can quibble with why conservatives think that they like that part of him. Fine, but well, I think my answer is the correct one, which is why are they rallying around him? The man fights too many people across the country, at least conservatives, who aren't all Republicans and who some are Republican-ish. You know, they were discouraged over the fact that it didn't seem like there was ever the time to fight. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, most Republicans were a little relieved when John Roberts and the majority of the court fixed or mended Obamacare twice. They were actually relieved because they're like, phew, we don't have to come up with this alternative, which we don't really know exactly what it's going to be. <laughs> so, the uh, you know, there are many moments when the conservative activists kind of get it more than we think they do. My only point on, on the Republicans is not that they never fought them. I think that they're, most of the Republicans in the House and the Senate were trying to do everything they could to stop the things they disagreed with, which is what they should do. Um, I just think that the perception amongst grassroots activists um, were that they weren't fighting hard enough. And they weren't fighting on the things that they cared about. But I think the Republicans themselves here were, I think, part of the problems for Republicans, and I don't blame them as as, as much as others, is they were dealing with a whole kind of new reality. So when I worked for President George W. Bush, anytime one of us hotshot staffers had an idea, the pushback was, okay, what Democrats are we going to work with? Because George W. Bush worked within the, worked within a framework of hey, Republicans, if they have majorities in Congress, they're temporary and they're never that large. And so you always got to have Democrats you're working with. So in all of his big stuff, he had Democrats. Mm -hmm. And that was just how you started. And Obama, we can blame either side. I'll blame my side. You blame your side, whatever. But, you know, if you look at it, the um, in the end, it just wasn't going to work. They weren't going to get anything done together. And uh, primarily because Republicans had decided Republicans on the Hill had decided, as I said, we're not working. As I said, we're not working. And I'm going to tell you that I believe that President Obama did not have um, the leadership uh, style that other Democrats like Bill Clinton had and Republicans like Ronald Reagan had to actually find a way to be a diplomat to get those things done. In whatever case, you might be right, I might be right, but that's where it got to. Mm-hmm. And um, So how's it going to be, sorry, how's this going to get better now that President Trump is in the White House and you have a Congress now that is not about compromise, is about, you know, we now have the majority, we want to do it our way, and hell no do we want to so, do anything with, with so any kind of Democratic vote. It's a great question, Jonathan. So to finish this up, I think Obama ended up using his executive pen to excess. And I actually think that was corrosive for the system. And I think what we're seeing for Donald Trump is the reversal of much of that. Um, if that's where it ends, I don't think it's good for the system either. I think that will further corrode the system. What has to happen is, is that a Republican president has to work with at least a group of Democrats in the Senate on the big questions the big questions of, you know, uh, you know, healthcare in the end, it's great that we're going to do it on reconciliation, but that's temporary. In the end, you should be able to pass something that's permanent law. On immigration, I think you should be able to pass something that's permanent law. In the end, you have to your big initiatives have to withstand the congressional process. And that congressional process usually comes up with an unideal outcome from my perspective, but that is the process. And that's where it should go. And what I would encourage President Trump to do is to use that process. What happened to the the Reagan revolution? Well, uh, first of all, what's incredible to remember, and I just haven't come through CPAC, the last president to come to CPAC in his first term was Ronald Reagan. It was a long time ago, Jonathan. So I, I'm going to say this carefully, but you know, some of those people aren't with us anymore. And things change, and you have a new generation of leadership. Ronald Reagan was very special. 
special to the country, special to conservatives. Maybe people like that don't come around that often. Um, you know, I'm a Catholic, and the Catholic experience, we talk about Pope John Paul the Great. You know, you don't get great leaders that often. Uh, Democrats have their great leaders, too. And so you can't expect that every generation. And he was just special and unique. You know, I spent a lot of time with Michael Reagan and was telling me these great stories about his dad. And he's a special and unique guy. I think the principles remain. I don't doubt that at all. I think the fundamental philosophy remains. But it's a new cast of characters, new leaders. And so then the the ultimate new leader right now is sitting in the White House, President Trump. So has is the Reagan revolution giving, giving way to... Trump nationalism? You know, uh, this was this was the story for the last week for conservatives having to answer this question. And, uh, you know, we had our own poll at the event. And Trump has unified conservatives up towards to 90% support the way he's acted in office for the last 30 days in terms of his policies. So he's unified them. I don't, I don't get the sense that the philosophy is changed very much at all. I do think he has a unique leadership style. He has unique nomenclature, and he's rethinking some of these terms, which I think is fine. And he is adding new people who tend to be, who like parts of Trump and maybe are less philosophically grounded, but they want to be part of the coalition. I'm of a mind to say, come on in. Others aren't as inclusive when it comes to expanding your your ideological coalition. For me, um, you know, we live in a democracy. I want to win elections. You know, uh, I don't want to give somebody a, uh, a philosophical test every time they want to kind of come our way. And I think some of these people, including the president himself, you know, he's a work in progress. I get it. Ex- expanding the coalition, bringing in new people. Two people who have been brought in are very concerning to certainly to to liberals. But I've heard from all told numbers of conservatives, and I've read conservatives who are extremely concerned about Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. senior counselor to the president, has an office, just steps away from the Oval Office. And then Stephen Miller, right. who is a spokesperson, he's, he's someone who, if I understand correctly, wrote the president's joint session speech, was the major person to write it. Um, when you were asked by Benji Sarnon of NBC News whether prominent conservatives were right to be connect to be concerned about the alt-right you responded sure we're concerned about the alt-right we're going to talk about the alt-right at cpac we're going to explain that we don't believe that's a legitimate voice in conservatism i think people who are concerned about the alt-right are properly focusing on making sure it doesn't get mainstreamed because it shouldn't and yet there are steve bannon and and stephen miller right there in the west wing doesn't that mean that despite the concerns, the alt-right is now mainstream, if not the power within the White House? I don't think that's right. But could I, if I could walk this back a little bit, I didn't know what this term meant not that many months ago. You know, the first well, it is time a I, euphemism for white nationalism. Well, so, so you know what? I, I think it's really important to get the terminology right. So if we're saying we have racists uh, involved in the government, I would say, of course, that's alarming and that shouldn't happen. And they're not. And I would tell you, certainly, I know Stephen Leswell. I know Steve very well. He's not. So I would want to allay any concerns that he is. But this term alt-right, it, this is where lingo gets us into, into, into interesting places. So Hillary Clinton brings up this term alt-right. And I remember walking in this very office and saying, what is this stuff? What is this alt-right? And someone says, oh, it's a bunch of you know, uh, they're just mar- They're just trying to disparage conservatives. Other people said, oh, there's some fringy racist folks that claim that term. And uh, so our executive director did some research and, um, and found there is a group that claims this 
this term alt-right said flat out i want to give a let me try to explain that just so you know so this there is a group that claims this term alt-right they're not a large group they are racist they are intolerant the leader of the group came to cpac we had him escorted out uh, we had a speech at CPAC talking about that this has no role in conservatism. Our country's fought a war. We've passed three constitutional amendments. We've been through hell and back on questions of racial participation in a democracy, and we've ha- and we've made the right decisions as a country. And it would be wrong to to even uh, it would be wrong to do anything to weaken that. That being said, this term alt right, alternative right, if you don't know what they mean in terms of a group, it sounds like a new way to say, hey, I'm kind of a you know, a new version of a conservative. So a lot of people jumped onto it and said, yeah, alternative is not such a bad word anymore. That's kind of a cool word. It's a hip word. They had no idea that this group had grabbed this this term for their racist ideology. And so uh, that's what I would say when people like Steve Bannon or others grabbed this term and said, oh, yeah, we're, we're all right. Or this, I don't think they had any idea that this other group existed. We're trying to highlight that this group exists. And that's why it's easy for the press to combine those two uh, interpretations of what that term meant. And look, the bad guys grabbed the term. It's unfortunate they grabbed the term. It, I don't think that's what most conservatives meant if they used the term. But and Matt, we're going to make that clear to people. But Matt, one of those people, the bad guys used the term. Steve Bannon was on record saying that when he was uh, chairman of Breitbart, that they he's, we gave a platform to the He had no idea. Alt-right. He did not realize. He wasn't reading his own website with the racism and anti-Semitism that was on his website? But that's different. See, you're conflating Breitbart News with a group that, by its very mission statement, uh, is is racist. And I don't. I would not conflate those two. I think the mistake the press makes, and the reason why Donald Trump uh, is in this war with the press, which seems to be instigated by Steve Bannon, is that very reason, which is, Jonathan, it's a, it's, it's, you have to understand it's offensive. I just, I, I'm a proud conservative who looks at Breitbart and reads Breitbart and has a lot of friends who work at Breitbart, I do not believe they're racist. And once again, when Steve Bannon brought up that topic, he wasn't trying to endorse the racist ideology of that group. It was a term that he had a different definition for. And so I would just I would bring it back to this point, which is beat them. If you're a liberal and you want to beat them on the fact that you think their policies are bad, do it. I think it's a big mistake in this country where we go right to the racism question because there really are racists and they really ought to be called out and they really ought to be fought. And you know what? You and I ought to fight them together. But when, but, but, but when, the, when the definition is overbroad and gets a lot of my conservative brethren who are good people who are just trying to fight for a limited role of government, um, then I think I, it makes it harder to build these left-right coalitions. So when Steve Bannon said at, at, at CPAC, you did that interview with Steve Bannon and, and Ryan Priebus, right. the chief of staff. When Steve Bannon said, he was talking about the globalist, corporatist media, so the folks who, who hear that and, and say that that is a dog whistle, a barely veiled dog whistle to am- anti-Semitism, they're wrong. Yes, or, you I, don't, or you don't agree. I didn't even think about that until you brought it up right now. Seriously. Yes. Yes. Do you think most, I mean, that's a, kind of a silly thing. If you look at most of the big media companies, they're publicly held corporations. It has nothing to do with someone's heritage. These are people, the biggest stockholders in most of these entities are pension funds. I I take that point, it's huge. but, it, but the, this the, is the sort of capital sort infused of in them is, is legacy so diverse. language here um, that sort of signals and has signaled for generations anti-Semitism. But you don't you don't see it. You don't you don't think that that's what. So Steve if Bannon someone is cri- if someone about. criticizes the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they're being anti-Semitic. 
that's not the point that's being made. But let's you don't let, believe that. You don't really well, believe that that well that particular well, that of, particular statement that you just said, no. I so think that me, that, that would push, be ridiculous. But I do think But let me push back a little I'm bit. Trying on, to put, there are a lot of dots that folks are easily connecting. Like one of those when you would go to the diner when you were a kid and you get that menu with the, you know, take your pen and draw the picture. Yes. The dots and it's yes. like a, you can see it. It's a giant Mickey right. Mouse without even using the pen the pen to do it. But, um when it comes to Steve Bannon and white nationalism, there's no link are, at all. Folks are connect, making the link using his own words. Because you might use words out of context. So let me push back on this. So the Trump campaign did very well in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Ohio with working class folks, with blue collar folks. The um, if you if you if you kind of look at the way the coalition is coming together, this administration is actually doing very well with voices who would normally be associated with the Democratic Party. Now, you might see racism there. I don't. What I see there is people who are saying, hey, these big entities and institutions aren't giving me a fair shake. I don't see racism there. I don't know everyone's heart. Everyone has to speak for what's in their own heart. But what I see there is actually an interesting chance where voices on the left and voices on the right can work together to say, yeah, maybe there shouldn't be some kind of collusion amongst the big companies in a given sector or whatever, that in a way where it hurts somebody who is less powerful. Um, I actually think it's the opposite of what these charges are. Um, and I don't see race, religion, or any intolerance wrapped up in any As a matter of fact, I think for liberals, liberals, you don't have to listen to me. I don't blame you if you don't. But Get connected to why this campaign worked. And it worked not because they followed the rule book coming out of, you know, the corporate uh, allies of the Republican Party for all these years. It actually worked because it was the opposite of that. And that's kind of a pitchfork revolt moment. And that could be a good thing for the country. Don't, or, don't automatically assume it's done for evil purposes. It really could be a very positive thing. And once again, it can shake up the order of things, which I personally think is a good thing. You know, you have been on record now for almost two years, ever since now President Trump was out on the campaign trail, uh, defending him against charges of, of racism or insensitivity, to be a little more kind. And, you know, he has made calls to unity, as he did in his joint session address. Um, he did that the night he was elected in his, his victory speech. But I have to ask you, how can the president make good on those calls for unity when a big chunk of the electorate thinks that what he has done, what he has said, what he's proposed in terms of policies suggests otherwise? I mean, there's a reason why people are out in the streets in multiple cities around the country. It's kind of I, I would say this, which is I think it's real. It's a real response to him. Obviously, not all that is positive for him. But it's also easy. It's easy. What's the consequences for taking to the streets and being against Donald Trump? Are there any consequences? You, will you suffer any personal or professional consequences for that? Or is it the opposite? Well, a lot of people out there who are marching are concerned about family members or even their own even their own personal safety. In particular, I'm thinking, the, obviously, I'm thinking of the, the immigration. But what are the consequences in society for standing up against Donald Trump? I think they're very little. When you're a conservative and you're on campus or you're in a big corporation and you have conservative values, um, the consequences are very large. Um, and that's a dynamic in our society that I think has to stop, which I think we have to have a basic tolerance. The fact that we're going to have diversity from a political perspective in this country. And so what I would say to these people that are protesting Donald Trump, 
get a Gatorade and go for it. This is, you know, this is going to make our country better. I don't have a problem with it. For these congressmen who are wimping out from their town halls, go take your medicine. I wouldn't overread into what's happening in these town halls that somehow 75% of the country is for Obamacare. I think that's absurd as well. You know, this is how you resolve things is you have to have the back and forth. I think when we do the name calling, which happens more often to people like myself who are against Obama politically or against Hillary Clinton uh, politically than it does for the people who are against Trump. And I just think that's unfortunate. But Didn't you know, the president in, set the tone on the campaign trail with the name calling? He did. You're right. He is. He talks in a way we've never seen in politics. I will give you that. <laughs> yeah. And you know that I have been you're, you're right to say that I have been supportive of him. But, uh, you know, my wife and I decided about in the middle point of the campaign that it was like we rededicated ourselves to the fact that we'll call balls and strikes and he's outside the zone. We'll say he's outside the zone. That being said, you have to own the other side of this, which is a lot of Trump is a function of Obama. Now, Obama is likable. He doesn't use incendiary words. He doesn't use guttural words. But what he did politically was brute force. And was not collaborative and did not uh, result in bipartisan successes. He got Obamacare with Democrat votes. And there's a consequence to that. And I think a lot of people shut, felt shut out of the Obama administration. A lot of people on the right felt shut out. In my opinion, Donald Trump is a big function of his success is because of the Barack Obama leadership. And I think the left has to understand that as well. And, you know, as a country, we have to work through these these times. And right now... We're going to be in a really tumultuous political time. I don't see how we have, we're going to have anything different. That, that is true. You know, it, it, you mentioned the problems conservatives have on campus, and that's w- one of the reasons why you invited Milo Yiannopoulos that's right. to speak at CPAC. That's right. Uh, and then rescinded the invitation yeah. after um, his comments on pedophilia right. were, were revealed. But Milo had an extensive record of racist, anti-Semitic, intolerant views that really go against the grain of, of who we are as Americans. And so people are wondering, why did it take his comments, old comments about pedophilia, to have a, an invitation rescinded when there is clearly a mountain's worth of evidence that for a lot of conservatives, he should not have been there invited and to begin well, with. for liberals who don't come to CPAC, um, you know, an invitation to CPAC is not an endorsement. We invite all kinds of people to CPAC. We've had very far left voices at CPAC. We've had regular old main, you know, straight shooting journalists at CPAC. So the first question is, is that I think a lot of people assume CPAC is almost like a church where you get some kind of a, uh, it's almost like a laying on of hands that this person's acceptable. And that's not how I view CPAC. I view CPAC as broader than a position that the American conservative union might take on a policy question. Uh, We're okay with controversy. Uh, We're okay with people who have said inappropriate things maybe coming to CPAC, but here's how we've changed things, which is those people have to account for what they said. So, you know, Milo came to this office, met with me, and said, look, I've been shut out of campus. I know I've said these, uh, I've said things that people think are outrageous and everything else. And I said, look, I think the only way this would work is if you have to answer for the things you've said. We're going to ask you these. You've made these statements. We're going to have a moderator, and they're going to ask you, and you have to give answers. And they have to pass muster with the attendees. So that was the intent of where this was going. I'm okay with controversy. I was not okay when it, I believe, crossed a very uh, big, important barrier into criminality not on his part, but it seemed to advocating for criminal behavior. And uh, it just 
it, it broke through a barrier that I thought was inappropriate. Now, has he broken through other, has he said and done other things that are inappropriate? Of course. But it was more in terms of free speech, right? Which does he have the right to say it? And I think the college campus is particularly uh, on trial here. The whole concept of academic freedom is, is that if we give you the freedom to express your point of view, we'll expose people who don't have the truth on their side, right? And we'll also propagate truth because you'll listen to it and more people say that makes sense to me. It's shutting down the speech that actually allows the people, if they're hateful, to gain a foothold. So we don't want to play into that idea of being censoring too much. Uh, and I think that's why the college, the question on college campuses is really important. Look, I was a real geek. Jonathan, it'll sh- shock you. I mean, I was a conservative <laughs> agitator. I started a conservative magazine at the University of Notre Dame where I went to school. Um, you know, there was, I, I can tell you there's no question that if you look at how professors at most of the major colleges um, vote, you know, they don't vote the way I vote in most cases. It was very unusual. We could only find two professors who would even associate with our conservative magazine? I mean, it was, you know, it's not exactly fertile ground for a conservative. We all know that. Let's be honest. The media is mostly this that way, not completely, but mostly that way too. And uh, and so we think that they're on trial, and we think that they should actually be standing up for their values and allowing people to speak, even when they think that speech is problematic and maybe even hateful. But I don't think that speech is appropriate when it turns mm-hmm. into mainstreaming hurting kids and Mm -hmm. that was too much well we're running out of time that's because i'm filibustering i apologize (laughs) yes i've noticed you've been you've been filibustering i've been on tv with you jonathan i know i gotta get my i I gotta get my time in yeah and and avoid the questions but i have to ask you i've answered the questions okay how much time are conservatives uh and republicans and the folks who support the president going to give him to make good great on question. his economic uh, it promises. It is a great question. I'd say he's had a good 30 days, but it's only 30 days. 40 days. 40 days. And, uh, it, but it's been a great 40 days. And, uh, and I would say that his presidency hinges on the ability to get this economy going. It really does. It hinges on that. If, uh, if a couple years from now we're looking at very anemic growth – and people aren't seeing a big change in their take-home pay, I think his political situation will be rocky. And I think he knows that. Look, when he talks about immigration and trade, and um, and when he talks about China, and when he talks about Mexico, when he talks about this, people can take a lot out of it. But it's my belief in talking to him that he is focused like a laser on anything he can do marginally to add one more job, to help one more American bring home a little bit more money in their paycheck, to give them a little better life. He's actually focused very little. He's meeting with these CEOs, but he's focused very little on like making sure that they have a better life. He wants them to take that money and invest it in the economy, which is why most of his conversations behind the scenes with CEOs actually don't go that well. He's pushing them. He's saying, look, I'm like the mayor of America right now. I want you investing here. It's a good community. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you. Um, Are you going to ask the, me about the, Milo again? The, the the most important question yeah. of this entire interview okay. is this. How on earth did you get Mercedes <laughs> to, one, go out on a date with you, and then to marry you? <laughs> wow, that's really rough. Because <laughs> I was in the, believe it or not, um, when we were in the White House, we met in Richard Nixon's old office. I think it's room 180 in the old executive office building. And- Uh, Believe it or not, my boss was trying to date Mercy, and my colleague (laughs) who was working for me uh, in political affairs had been going out on some sporadic dates with her. So um, these two people would talk to me about Mercy, (laughs) 
and their strategies to like uh, get Mercy <laughs> to go out with them again. And uh, and at the same time, I picked up, and I'm very slow. And 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 your listeners who have maybe seen me here, there will not be surprised. I'm very slow to pick up on things. And finally, Mercy's boss came to me and said, "You're being a complete idiot." And I'm like, "What?" She was like, "Clearly, Mercy wants you to ask her out, and she's a Cuban, and she's expecting you to ask her." And I'm like, "Okay, all right, I get this thing." <laughs> and uh, and so I had to navigate my boss and my colleague, and and uh, and it all worked out the way it worked out. But and that's been. Well, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm not so sure Mercy's that happy. You'd have to do a separate interview with her. <laughs> I will do that. How many years has it been now? Almost 15. 15 years, yeah. five daughters. Five daughters. Yep. Pregnant most of half of our half of our marriage. <laughs> She's not happy with me about that part. But the uh, but no, we've had we're very blessed. We've had a, we've had uh, a really interesting life. Think about it. Started a meeting at the White House. All of these political battles. Uh, she's got politics running through her veins like I do. Um, we we don't agree on everything, but most things. And uh, and she's the, the greatest thing about Mercy is she changed my life and she's my best friend. Matt Schlapp, chairman of the American Conservative Union. Thank you very, very much for being Thanks, on, Jonathan. on the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. That was fun. Today. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.